Welcome to the Rocky Messages Podcast. Rocky is a gathering of people that want to know Jesus and love like Him. If you hear something today that you'd like to know more about, you should check out our other podcast, Rocky Unscripted, where we take a topic and through conversation and study, we go a little bit deeper. And right now, let's join today's message. Amen. If you're in the room here at Niwot, you can have a seat. If you're out there at Fred, uh, you guys can have a seat. It's good to see everybody here. And I, I would agree with your campus pastors. Um, Amanda just said it here. I think Matt did there. I bet there's some people that, schedule, uh, that did not schedule their baptism um, that are here that are going to probably do that today. And we've had that happen at both campuses uh, in the early service, and I think it'll happen in this one too. And so super excited. I want you to get to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, starting verse 10, we've been in the same uh, eight verses for the last two weeks. We'll be in the same for the next two weeks. And I just want you to land there. As you're turning there in your Bibles or your phones, I just want to ask you a question. What does it mean, what does it look like to be a good person? Like if you just kind of step back, I think we'd all probably have similar ideas, similar answers to that question. But what does it mean to be a good dad? What does it mean to be a good mom? What does it mean to be a good husband or a good wife? What's it mean to be a good friend? And we just give all kinds of things. We'd be like, man, you should put people before yourself. You should do what you say when you say you're going to do it. Uh, you should love people and care for people. And we just give a whole list of things. And we might use different words, but we would come back to the same thing. What does it mean to be a good person? Our answers would probably be similar. Now, let's switch it up a little bit. What does it mean to be a good Christian? Like when we think about faith, I mean, we're here at church right now, right? And you're watching online or whatever. What, what does it mean to be a good Christian? Now, we could go into all kinds of things. I mean, we start listing off all kinds of religious actions and activities and things that we do and, and, and then attitudes that we have. And we could argue about all those things or we could just simply look at Scripture and see what Jesus actually says about what does it mean to be a good person or what does it mean to be a good Christian? Now, what's interesting is Jesus actually shifts the wording a little bit. He doesn't even use the word good. He doesn't even use the word Christian. He uses a word that we're kind of uncomfortable with sometimes. It's got a little bit of negative connotation. It's a religious word, but sometimes we look at it and we're like, I don't know if I like that word because of other things that I've seen. He uses the word righteous. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is standing there on a hillside. He's preaching to a massive crowd, a crowd just like this, or a crowd like the crowd at the Frederick campus. Tons of people, and he's teaching them about what a good life actually looks like. And here's what he says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, there's the word, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Who were those guys? They were the religious people. Right? And what's interesting about Jesus, Jesus never pulls any punches. So he's talking to this massive crowd, and there's a whole bunch of Pharisees and teachers of the law that are standing off to the side, bickering with each other, making accusations under their breath about Jesus because they don't like him because he's more popular than they are. I mean, they're the religious authorities in the area. And Jesus says, hey, you want to be a good Christian? You want to be a good person? Make sure your righteousness is better than those guys. I mean, that's literally how it would have been. He would have said, I don't know if he pointed, but everybody knew they were in the crowd. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the way Jesus would ask the question is, what does it mean to be a righteous person? Like, what does it actually take 
to be a righteous person. And apparently from his answer, it was a lot. Like you look at these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, I mean, to measure up to their lifestyle in religious terms, the people in the crowd are like, well, if that's what it takes to be righteous, who can? And not only is that what it takes to be righteous, but he says, if that's what it takes to get into the kingdom of heaven, you got to be better than these guys. What is this actually take? Because when you looked at them, those guys, they prayed three times a day. And it wasn't like your prayers where you just kind of like something bad happens in life and you're like shooting up a prayer at the ceiling. This was go to the temple. Go to the temple, get down on your knees, take time out of your day, walk all the way there and take time to pray. Now the Jewish people did that, but the Pharisees would stand on the street corners going into the temple and they would pray these elaborate, beautiful, crazy prayers. They fasted a couple times a week. They tithed on everything. Not just their finances, they tied on everything, even down to the herbs that came out of their gardens. Man, if he wanted to be like the Pharisees and be righteous like them, that was a tall task. Good news? Jesus wasn't talking about a whole bunch of religious activities. What Jesus was talking about when it came to what does it mean to be a righteous person, he was talking about the idea of a righteousness that changes our heart and actually protects our life. Ephesians chapter 6 Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. We've read this, these, these eight verses the last two weeks. We're going to read them again. Here's what he says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Why armor? Paul's using this armor illustration. He's saying, hey, the Christian life is actually hard. Like to live a life that God wants you to live, it's actually hard, and he compares it to a battle. That's why you need armor. He says, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. We have an enemy. If you're in a battle, it means you have an enemy that wants to take you out. He expands on that. He says, this enemy has help. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand... Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Matt talked about the belt of truth last week. And with the breastplate of righteousness in place. There's that word. Righteousness. We're going to unpack it today. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul starts writing, he says, we're in this battle. And, and you get that. Like whether you just kind of ascribe to spiritual things or not, whether you've been a Christian very long or not, you would admit that life's hard. And sometimes there are temptations out there that are tempting you to do things that bring some difficult consequences into your life. And what Paul's saying is that's just a spiritual battle that rages behind the scenes. And we're in this series called Christian Streaker, and some of you guys are like, Christian Streaker, what does that mean? Well, here's the deal. You wouldn't streak through life. Like 90% of you, we started off this series and I showed some like streaker videos, like G-rated, PG-rated streaker videos. And you guys laughed a ton because you were like, that's hilarious. And you weren't laughing at the streaker, you were laughing at the streaker getting taken out by the security guard. Like we've all watched that and you're just waiting and they get taken out. And what Paul's saying is we're in a spiritual battle with an enemy named Satan, 
which we don't even like to talk about. We don't like to say his name. And we don't like to acknowledge that there might be something against us. We're in a battle with an enemy. And what God says is, I don't leave you naked running through that battle. What I do is I give you some armor to actually fight that battle and win. And so Paul jumps in and he says, let me give, let's just take some illustrative material. Like this is kind of figurative idea. And let's talk about the actual armor that God gives us. Matt talked about the belt of truth last week. Then he says the breastplate of righteousness. Let's unpack that this week. A breastplate, it was a picture of a Roman soldier. Roman soldier wore a breastplate. It would be basically a big sheet of metal that would cover from their neck to their waist, from the front to their back. It was light, but it was also strong. They would say of a breastplate of a Roman soldier, you could stand 20 paces away, take a bow and arrow, rear back, and let that thing fly, and it barely leave a scratch on a Roman soldier's breastplate. Like the breastplate, what did it cover? It actually covered the vital organs of the body. So the helmet was incredibly important. The breastplate was incredibly important because those, those two things, they actually took care of and protected the most important organs that we have. And so when Paul uses this idea of a breastplate, he attaches it to this understanding of like righteousness. And, and what's interesting is the actual illustration comes from the Old Testament. So if you look at it, it's not just this idea of, okay, righteousness and truth and salvation. It's actually attached to the character of God. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, it says this, he or God put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. So what you had here is righteousness, this breastplate, what it was is it covers the vital organs in the body in a literal sense for a Roman soldier. In a spiritual sense, it covers our heart. It covers our heart with the idea of righteousness and the idea of righteousness is taken from the character of God. So if we're gonna understand what this breastplate is and how it actually works, we have to understand this idea of the righteousness of God. And so when we talk about righteousness, Right? Sometimes we think of it in negative terms, self-righteousness. That was because of the Pharisees. Those guys that always knew they were better, like always knew more, and were always shaming people for, for who they were, and they weren't good enough. They weren't like the Pharisees. Jesus says, no, I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about a righteousness that surpasses theirs. It's not religious activity. It's a character issue that goes deep into our heart and actually transforms our heart and protects our life. So righteousness, when it's attributed to God, is a character. It's the idea that God's character, right? There is no difference between what he says about himself, the characteristics of his holiness, his justice, and his mercy. That's the way he's described in the Old Testament. He's holy, he's just, and he's merciful that those things are never in contradiction from what he says and what he actually does. Now, you might look at the Old Testament and say, man, there's some crazy stories there. That's another sermon. We could talk about that another time. But what he's saying is God's righteous character, his holiness, his mercy, his justice that he just takes, like, uses in the world, it never is in contradiction from what he says and what he does. So... When it comes down to a person's righteous character, it's not compared to the person sitting next to you. It's not compared to the person who's more religious than you. 
our character is supposed to be a reflection of not just our thoughts on character, but God's. See, we're not compared with somebody next to us. We are actually compared to the character of Jesus. So for a person to be righteous, it means that their character has to be the same as God's justice, his holiness, and his mercy. Which we ought to just all go home right now because you know we all have messed that one up, right? Like we have all messed that up. I mean, we messed that one up a long time ago. So you just step back and you're like, okay, so what does this actually mean? Like what are we sitting here understanding? Because if we fall short of God's character, of his justice, his mercy, and his holiness, then how in the world are we supposed to use righteousness as this breastplate? Well, here's the deal. In the Bible, the Bible talks about two kinds of righteousness. Okay, there's one that's practical righteousness that shows us how it becomes a breastplate. And then there's another one that is positional righteousness that talks about the comparison of our character to Jesus' character. Let's start with practical righteousness. You see, in the New Testament, the New Testament is written in the Greek language. And so when you talk about the word righteousness or the word righteous, the word is actually used in kind of a connotation around the idea of our ethical conduct. So what Paul's really talking about, the breastplate of righteousness, he's talking about your conduct and your conduct and your conduct in relationship to God and then in relationship to other people. So it it is the treating of other people the way God would actually treat them. Like if our character is supposed to be about his holiness, his justice, and his mercy, then what we're doing is our righteousness is we're trying to display those characteristics to other people. And the reality is this, how does the breastplate become a breastplate and protect our actual life and our actual heart? Is because God says this, when you live my character in relationship to people, you get better results. When you love your spouse the way I would love your spouse, when you love and discipline your kids the way I would discipline your kids, when you treat your money the way I would treat your money, when you treat your relationships, your friendships, your leadership, all of those things the way I would treat those things, you get better results. There's a whole book about this in the Bible, like practical understanding of living out God's character as righteous or the world's character sometimes as wickedness. It's the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11, it says this. It says, the righteousness, the righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way. Translation, you do good things, you get an easier life. Like you act appropriately in relationships, you get an easier life. If you don't, you get a harder life. Verse 5 and 6, the righteousness of the blameless smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. You see, what Paul's saying is this idea of a breastplate of righteousness. It's not a literal breastplate that you wrap on. It is the conduct and character that we live that either does one of two things. Our conduct either protects us against the consequences of bad character, poor character, or it invites the consequences of poor character. Here's how we say this at home. Like my wife, Jen and I, we started a long time ago and we say this in so many different areas. We say it with integrity, we say it with sports, we say it with studies, we say it with relationships. We tell our kids all the time. We say, do the right thing, get the right what? 
Okay, you just said it. Like you at the Niwa campus, you just said it. Fred campus, you probably just said it. You don't even have to know the value of our household, but you understand, do the right thing, get the right results. Like I'll look at my boys all the time. I'll be like, you respect your mom. You talk respectfully to your mom, you're gonna get a whole lot more yeses from her and from me than no's. Like if you're respectful, you're just gonna get a good response. You get disrespectful with your mom, I'm gonna be in your face. And it might actually be worse, like, because she's going to be ticked, and then she's going to be in your face, and she might be a little more hairy about it than me. Like, I'm going to protect my lady, right? And I'm going to say, but here's the deal. You respect her, you're going to get good results from both of us. I say to my boys all the time, if you don't hit your brother, okay, 13-year-old and 11-year-old, it doesn't always work the right way, okay? It doesn't always work. But we'll say, hey, you don't hit your brother, he's not going to hit you. Doesn't work all the time. Right? But if you treat your brother with respect, he's going to be more likely to treat you with respect. You're honest with us. Man, you're going to gain more trust. You treat your sisters with kindness and you be a gentleman to them and to the lady that you'll future to be with, you're going to get some better results. And that's just, that's the breastplate of righteousness. Where God says your conduct matters, and when you live conduct that is righteous or aligned or closely aligned with the righteousness of God, what do you get? You get a better life. Now, the opposite is also true. If you live the wrong kind of life in a whole lot of different areas, you get a harder life. Like students, we got a whole lot of students in this room, and I just say this, we had a whole lot of proms recently. Right? A whole lot of ladies buying dresses and, and dressing up and just looking beautiful and some great pictures out there. But honestly, young ladies, parents, here's the deal. When you sacrifice modesty and you continually sacrifice modesty, and that's just a first step to sacrificing some other things, and you think, no, well, he's going to treat me right. That young man is going to respect me. He's going to respect my body. He's going to value me. Not always true. I mean, ladies, think about it. These boys at that age, they can't even hardly tie their shoes at that age, much less value your heart. And so what God says on that, that line, that he's saying, hey, I'm not trying to take fun away from you. I'm not trying to take experiences away from you. What I'm trying to keep you from doing is getting hurt. Young men, man, keeping our eyes pure, not looking at things that we shouldn't look at. And you know what I'm saying. And you say, well, it's, man, everybody else is doing that. It's no big deal. And I've got all these feelings and all these emotions and all these hormones going on and all this stuff. It's no problem to look at some. Man, if you think that you can look at those things and then look at a young lady that you're dating and value her for her heart and respect for her enough to wait for her like God says, then you're missing it because that's not true. You see, last week, Matt talked about the belt of truth, and he said, you want to understand truth, you get close to Jesus, because Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way to a better life. I am the truth about what brings a better life. And then I'm the way just to experiencing that better life. You match that together with the breastplate of righteousness. You allow God to define truth no matter what you feel about it. And then you live out his truth as that breastplate that just guard you in your relationships, guard you in your character, guard you in your reputation, guard you in your friendship and your future. And here's the reality. 
like 90% of the time, that gives you a much better life. Now the reality is on the other 10% is there's a whole lot of stupid people out there that do stupid things that explode all over us. And so there's no guarantee that we're gonna live a pain-free life, but it means that we don't have to bring a whole lot of that pain on ourselves. See, I sat down and had that conversation. I was talking to my 11-year-old this morning. I was like, hey, we've talked about that value, and it's been a little while since I said it in the house. He goes, I know, Dad. Do the right thing. Get the right results. We put it in the practice on the basketball floor. We get a better jump shot, right? We put it in the practice and in, in the study in, in the classroom, and what we do, we get better grades. But the reality is this. When we take it to spiritual thoughts, When we live the life that God desires for us to live and he has grace when we don't, we'll talk about that in a second, it leads to a safer, more fulfilled, better life. And what we've got to ask ourselves is where are we telling ourselves some things that are not actually true? It's okay to do this. It's all right to do that. And then we jump in to do those things, and we're finding that the consequences are coming back on us. We've got to commit to and say, if I want to protect my life, if I want to fight against the arrows of the evil one, then I've got to put on that breastplate of conduct and try to live a better life, which works until it doesn't. Which works until it doesn't. Because what we're talking about is we don't compare our life to just the next religious person that's sitting next to us. What our life is compared to is the life of Jesus. And newsflash, his life was perfect. It was sinless. Like Jesus came, and there's a whole reason. We'll get to that. But he came, and he lived a sinless life. And so when we match up our conduct and we say, hey, I'm shooting for that, and the more I live like that, the better life's going to be. The problem happens when we realize we can't live up to that standard. Practical righteousness will take you so far. But thank God in Scripture there's another idea. It's called positional righteousness. Paul describes it in two different passages. He just fully addresses. He says, hey, here, here's the situation. You, you're not going to live up to the standard. You're going to mess up. Romans chapter 3, he says it this way in verse 21. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through Jesus Christ. Understand, it's not earned. What did it say? It didn't say you just, righteousness, you can be perfect before God if you do a whole lot of religious activities. He says, no. He says, it is given by faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. If you've been around church, you've heard it a lot. What you don't always hear is the rest of the verse. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then it goes on, and it says, and all are justified. You know what the word justified means? It means just as if I never sinned. Man, newsflash, we sin all the time. We feel shame for our sin all the time. There's not a person sitting in this auditorium that's perfect. There's not a person on this stage that's perfect. There's not a person out there in that room that's perfect. But somehow Jesus is saying, Paul is writing and saying that through Jesus, we can be justified just as if we never sin freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. How? Through Jesus Christ, but how did it happen? Here it is. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. Did you catch that? To become our sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might be put back in right standing to have the character of God when it comes to justice, holiness, and mercy that you might actually stand before God as innocent. So what Paul is writing is great news. How do you actually get that? I was driving from the Niwak campus to the Frederick campus last week, and um, I wasn't teaching, and so Matt was teaching, did a great job. We said it already, talked about the belt of truth, and I was actually sitting in the first service at Niwak in the back corner right over here, and then I was going to take some time and run over and, and go over to the Frederick campus. And my wife was out um, with, my, with my kids uh, doing some stuff. There was some basketball travel and some things. And so I just had Luke. And Luke's my, my little 11-year-old, man. And he's, he's super fun, and we have a great time together. And so we were sitting back here. We jumped in the car after the service, and we headed over. And I've kind of been having, trying to have some conversations with my kids. Like, just make good use of time in the car, you know, and just have some, like, leadership and life conversations about whatever. I mean, it could be sports, it could be faith, it could be relationships. And so we get in the car and we're cruising over and he's a little quiet. And I was like, hey, what'd you think of Colt and Lauren? So Colt's my nephew and he just came up from Dallas, Texas and he brought his new wife, Lauren. They're super young and we've never met Lauren before. And so I was just asking uh, Luke, I was like, what'd you think of Colt and Lauren? And he did what 11 year olds do. He's like, I don't know. And I'm like, bro, no, seriously, they, tell me what you thought. And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, no, okay, come on, help me out here. What'd you think of Colton Lauren? He goes, I don't know. What'd you think of Colton Lauren? I was like, all right. And I told him what I thought. I was like, dude, you know, super sweet. She was a little quiet at the beginning, but man, she's got a sense of humor. And Colt's great. He's a strong personality. But you know what? I saw some real strength in her and her personality. I think they're going to be great pair together. And he's like, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, okay. So we just keep driving over. We get to the Fred campus. We go in and we hang out with people. We catch a little in the message and we talk to a lot of people. We get back in the car and we drive away. And I was like, so what'd you think of the message? He's like, I thought it was really good. And, and I was like, well, you got to hear it, you know, like a time and a half. Like, what'd you actually think of it? And he, he's like, I don't know. No, I know, buddy. What'd you actually think of the message? He's like, I don't know. What'd you think of the message? You know. And so we talk about it and we ch chat through a couple things he didn't understand. And then he's like, What are you preaching on next week? I was like, Well, I'm preaching on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, we use that whole idea. We use it at home of you know, you do the right thing, you get the right results. He's like, Yeah, man, I know that. We talk about that. And, and uh, then there's this other idea. We're talking about positional righteousness. He's like, What's that? And I begin to explain to this kid, and it was really interesting because my 13-year-old Jake, I remember driving on a trip to Steamboat, and we're listening to some stuff in the car. He has some questions, and so we start talking, and I begin to explain to him about Jesus. And he knows the story, like he knows the whole thing, but he never really had an emotional reaction. And I begin to explain what Jesus actually did for Jake. And there was a moment at which I look over and my boy has these tears just coming down his face and I'm like, what is going on? And I wasn't necessarily explaining some big emotional story. It was just the moment at which he caught it. That's what he did for me. He actually said, dad, could we pull over the car right now? And can I pray right now because I need Jesus. 
I was like, bro, and I'm like crying, you know, I pull over, you know, and we, we have this moment together. Luke's never had that moment. Luke's gotten down in a baptistry and he got baptized. Luke's prayed and asked Jesus to forgive his sins. He's, he's professed his faith in Christ. Dude, he is a believer, he's saved. But here's the deal. Luke's never had that emotional moment where it just kind of like came into place and he understood. And so we're sitting in the car and we're having this conversation and I'm explaining, I said, bud, here's what this righteousness thing is because when we have sin in our life, the Bible says we fall short and we can't be with God. Like we can't be with God because God's perfect and we are not. So we can't be, sin can't be in his presence. And so Jesus had to do something. And so here's what Jesus did. He came and Luke knows all this stuff. Like he knows all this stuff. He's been to Sunday school. He's been to class. He knows all this stuff. And so he's just like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. And I'm like, but dude, here's what happened at the cross. Luke, Jesus looked at you and here's what he said. He said, Luke, your sin, I'm going to make a trade with you. Buddy, to be with God, you, you've got to have, you've got to be innocent before God. But Luke, we, we know we've sinned. And I even put it on him. I mean, think of the worst thing you've ever done right now. And I'd encourage you right here at Niwa, you right there at Fred, you online, think of the worst thing you've ever done. The one thing you don't even want to tell anybody that you feel shame about, all that stuff. So Luke, in that moment, here's what Jesus did. He said, hey, you give me that thing. And don't just give me that thing, you give me everything. Like you give me it all. You give me every single sin, every lie you've told, every dishonest things you've done, everything you stole, everything you've done, everything you said disrespectfully, and we could just keep going with all the stuff we talk about. Every sin that's happened sexually, every addiction that is out there that we've got, every dishonest thing that we don't wanna tell people that we actually did, and what Jesus did at the cross, he said, I'm making a trade with you. You give me your sin, and I'll give you my innocence. And I looked at Luke and I was like, buddy, do you realize, like, how was Jesus treated on the cross? He was treated as guilty, wasn't he? They nailed his hands and feet to a tree. I didn't explain all this and say all this, but I'm like, they treated him as guilty, did they not? How do you get treated? Bro, you get treated as innocent. And when God looks at you, Luke, here's the thing. He does not see you and any sin you've ever committed. What he sees is his son, Jesus. And I look over, I'm driving, and I'm like, what do you think of that? And he says, nothing. He's looking at me, and I look over, and he's got big old crocodile tears right there. And I realize in the moment, man, he believes. He's given his life to Christ. He's even been baptized. But that was the moment that he got it. That was the moment that he understood that Jesus had made a trade for him, and I looked at him, and you know what? He'd already made that decision before, so we were just kind of pulling up to the Frederick camp, or pulling away from the Frederick campus. We were getting home. We're sitting in the driveway. The tears are right there, and I totally let him off the hook. I was like, you hungry? Let's go get something to eat. And you could just see him go, okay, yeah. Guys, I'm not letting you off the hook today because there's a whole lot of us that need to understand that we got some shame in our life and what Jesus looks at, Jesus is not like the world who wants to shame you. Jesus is the one that looks at all your shame and says, give me that. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna trade you my innocence for your guilt so that when you stand before God now and when you stand for before God in eternity, that he will not see your sin, he will see me. He will see Jesus and his total innocence. Guys, that is a good trade. <laughs> that's a good trade for you, and that's a bad trade for Jesus, unless 
you realize that he loves you with all his heart and he can't live without you, so he had to come and make the trade. And what I want to encourage you today is that some of you, today's your moment where you're like, maybe I haven't understood it there before, that way before. Maybe there's even some emotion where you're like, okay, I need to make this decision. I'm going to have everybody stand. There's 45 people today that have already scheduled. We had a bunch in the first service. There's 10 right here at Niwa. There's a bunch at the Frederick campus that are going to do it in this service. And I want to encourage you to come down. And there's some of you sitting there saying, you got all kinds of excuses. Why not? I didn't bring anything with you. The campus pastors told you we got everything you need to do it. And if it's this big a deal, why not do it? Some of you are sitting there saying, well, I was baptized as a baby, but I've kind of like, I don't even remember it. Well, here's the deal. Getting baptized as an adult doesn't take away that experience and the importance of that experience and the importance of that experience from your family. But what it does do doing it as an adult is you put a mark in the sand and you have that moment where it's real to you. Some of you have been baptized before and you were baptized at a really young age or you didn't understand or you were like six years old or seven years old and you're like, I don't even remember it. Here's the deal. Some of you had questions, should I get baptized again? Well, Jesus didn't get crucified again. You don't have to get baptized again. But if you need a moment, if you need a marker moment to say, this is the moment where I stepped in, where I recommitted or where I came back or where I fully understood. And I'm saying now I got to do something about my life because I am separated from God in the way I'm acting and the way I'm living. Then you do that today and we're going to celebrate. I'm going to pray and we're going to do two things. I'm going to encourage you as I pray to take communion, remembering the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then we're going to see people get baptized. And I want you to remember when they get baptized, baptism is the picture because of our faith. We are saved by our faith. But everyone who placed their faith in Jesus, it says that they are immediately baptized. In Scripture, it says they were immediately baptized. It was the picture of the death the burial and the resurrection. Romans 6 says, as many of those who were baptized into Christ Jesus were buried into his death and raised to live a new life. Baptism is just the picture of you trading places with Jesus. And I want to encourage you to do it today. I want you to stand at both campuses right now. I'm going to pray. And then I want to encourage you, if you want to get baptized, come. It may take a few seconds for people to get dressed and do that, but you're going to see baptisms from both campuses. Let's pray and then let's celebrate. Father God, we just come before you right now and we thank you for righteousness, practical righteousness that keeps us safe in our life, but positional righteousness that makes us right before you. God, for those who have not made that decision, for those who have not got their life right with you, exchanged their sin for Jesus' innocence, Father, I pray they do it today. I pray there would be some spontaneous decisions today at both campuses where people say, I want in with Jesus. And Father, I thank you that you don't judge us. You don't say, well, okay, but let me point out all, all the things. You don't shame us. You just receive us and you forgive us. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. God, thank you for your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.